Mark 3, beginning in verse 1, tells us, And he, that's Jesus, entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Step forward. Then he said to him, or said to them, excuse me, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. And Father, we just humbly pause and again pray for the grace and the power and help of your Holy Spirit in every way that we might have a heart to receive and an ear to hear what your Spirit is saying to this part of your church through this particular portion of your word this day. So Lord, we ask now that you might speak through what your spirit has already spoken in the written word of God, that we might each hear what you're saying to us this day. And we ask this expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. It has well been said that the heart of the matter is always the matter of the heart. You may have heard that statement before. The heart of the matter is always the matter of the heart. You know, the word heart is actually used, if you research it out, over 800 times in God's word. And of course, when we're seeing the term heart in God's word, normally it's not referring to the physical organ that circulates blood through our bodies, but it is a reference, of course, to the source of the inward life condition, what we might often deem as the soul of man or the spirit. It's who we truly are and what's going on inside of us emotionally, spiritually, mentally. In fact, we often say things, do we not? Things like, they have a broken heart, and we know what we mean by that. Or we may say something like, man, your heart is not right. Or we may say things like, wow, that person has such a, a tender heart or a kind heart. Or we may say the opposite, wow, man, that was pretty cold-hearted. Or worse, that's heartless. So we understand when we use the word heart that we're referring to that central source where all of our desires are at, where our attitude, in a sense, if you would, resonates from. And God's word addresses a lot about our heart condition, indicating to us that our heart condition is very important to him. Again, no wonder that statement resonates that the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And we recognize that the inner condition of our heart or the condition of another person's heart oftentimes becomes the determining thing regarding the conditions of what's going on in our life or maybe the conditions in a particular circumstance that's unfolding. One of my favorite life verses, Proverbs chapter 4, I have one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, says, keep your heart with all diligence for from it flow all of the issues of life. That we must keep our own heart condition because we realize from that source or spring of the heart 
flow forth all types of different streams that then influence all the different areas and issues of our lives. So wisdom would infer that I should want to have a right heart so that I could do the right thing before the Lord and the right thing in my life. Now, with that being said, let me pose a question as we go into our passage this morning. How important is it to us that we become well acquainted with the heart of God? And that we understand what the heart of the Lord is in a particular matter, or for that matter, in all things, in every situation, every circumstance. You know, it is interesting in John chapter 1, verse 18, the Bible tells us that Jesus came forth into this world from the bosom or the heart, if you would, of the Father in order to declare to us what God is like. And so in Jesus, who was God dwelling among us, we have the greatest revelation of who God is demonstrating to us in Christ the heart of God. The best way for us to understand the heart of God is to see the life of Jesus. In our passage this morning, which gives us, Mark does, another snapshot of the ministry of Jesus, we see in this passage here, I think very beautifully, a wonderful insight into the heart of the Lord. I think in this section, we get in Jesus a wonderful indication of what the heart of the Lord is like, that we might better know his heart. We find a man with a wounded life and Jesus showing great compassion towards him, seeking to help him, to heal him, and even to bring restoration in his life. And we find also people in the story pretending to be spiritual that are rather hypercritical instead and very self-righteous, and the Bible identifies them as hard-hearted. And then we see the heart of the Lord, not only towards this man, but we also see the heart of the Lord towards the hard-heartedness of these Pharisees and religious leaders that were there that day. In fact, it's one of the rare occasions when the Bible actually tells us, as it does there in verse 5, that Jesus was angry. We see occasions when he's turning over the tables where we can sense there's righteous anger, but here the Holy Spirit directly says he was angered and grieved over the hardness of their hearts. So look with me in our text in verse 1. It begins by unfolding, telling us that Jesus entered the synagogue again. Luke tells us this was, a on chapter 6, another synagogue gathering, a different Sabbath than the one we just read of back in chapter 2. So we're introduced here as Jesus now goes into the synagogue again to a man there who has a, says, withered hand. So the record opens introducing this wounded man, if we could refer to him that way, who's gathered at a weekly worship meeting of the Jewish people. It tells us Jesus went into the synagogue. The synagogue was the building that was the gathering location where the Jews would assemble together to honor and praise God. It's where they would assemble together in order to pray and to seek God. It's where they also would assemble together to learn more about God through the scripture. Very similar to the way that you and I do when we come together for church and we assemble in the church building to do much the same thing, to be with like-minded spiritual people, to worship God and seek God, and to learn about God. And on this particular Sabbath day of worship, there in the synagogue, we're told there was a man there, verse 1 says, and notice it describes, it says he had a withered hand. So there was this man in that assembly with this hand that was in somewhat of a shriveled or a retracted condition. It had dried up 
lost life. It had lost its proper function. His hand, in a sense, is paralyzed in this deformed condition. The Bible describes it as a withered hand. It is a part of his body that no longer functions as it was intended to function. Now, what's very insightful, the language in the perfect tense indicates that this hand had become withered. Now, that's insightful, that the hand had become withered, which means an experience that happened in the past that caused this current condition in this man's life that was now a permanent part of his life experience in this paralysis, if you would, meaning he was not born with this withered hand from birth. It was not a congenital condition, but something had transpired at some point in his life, something had happened to him that caused this damage to this particular part of his body, more than likely some kind of painful accident, maybe a stroke, that had wounded and damaged this part of his life, leaving that part of his life not functioning the way it once did. And it had rendered him paralyzed in this way where he's now handicapped with this withered hand. Luke, the doctor, the physician, tells us in his account that it actually was the man's right hand. And that's very interesting because the right hand typically was the dominant hand. And in society, which was predominantly manual labor where people work with their hands, that means this would be a significant setback for this man's life. To have a withered, handicapped hand that does not function normally severely hindered his ability to not only function in a normal way, but really to thrive. It was something that was a great setback in his life. Now, the question might become, was this just an unfortunate accident, something painful that happened to him that left him hurt in this way? Or, we don't know, did he potentially himself make a mistake? And did he bring self-harm upon himself? And as the result of maybe a bad decision, he now has this handicapped hand. Whichever it was, it left him a wounded man. And he's struggling to function, and there is a part of his life that lacks normal capacity now. Now, as I look at this withered man, I think he becomes a very fitting picture of what often happens to people in their lives, yet often internally. Oftentimes, in the same way as this man with the withered hand, some painful experience happens to a person or some misfortune unfolds in their life, some thing that causes great pain, and it leaves them a wounded individual. And they find, like this man here, some part of their life, in some ways, it sort of just withers. And some area of their life maybe shrivels up and kind of withers back, and it, it loses normal function. A part of their life that once functioned the way God originally intended through some wounding experience or some traumatic thing or some painful, hurtful thing, now that part of their life is withered and it no longer functions, if you would, the way that it once did. And there's this difficulty now in their life causing that person to struggle to function normally in that area because that part of them, if you would, has kind of become, we might say, broken. It's become damaged, and they find themselves a wounded individual. And again, this could be something that's happened to someone that causes them to now be in that condition, or it could be potentially sometimes people bring hurtful things upon themselves through a bad decision or series of bad decisions that leaves them as sort of a wounded 
individual and like this man who's still interacting with people, but you know no doubt that he's somewhat trying to hide his condition. And we know that because Jesus has to tell him to step forward. He was probably there just hoping he could attend the worship gathering and that he could keep his situation as you know, in a sense, not known as much as possible to everyone else. And much like this man, I think of how the reality is, I know you've experienced people often hide their internal wounds. Wounded people typically don't show up and announce, hello, I'm a wounded individual. I'm psychologically damaged from some traumatic thing that happened in my life. Or I'm emotionally scarred and I feel broken inside because of this painful thing that happened to me or this hardship that I went through that's kind of left me now almost struggling, feeling like I'm a wounded, broken individual. And I feel like I don't even have the capacity to do something that I once was able to maybe do or experience in my life. And they kind of hide that reality of their life. But nonetheless, here's the good news. This man with a withered hand was in the right place on this day because he's in the midst of the people of God for worship and the presence of God through in this situation the son of God was literally in their midst and on this very day this man's life was about to experience a miraculous change and transformation as he was going to have an encounter with Jesus before the meeting was over and his life was going to be forever altered in a wonderful way as the Lord touched and ministered him. Now, whenever the Lord is ministering and intending to do good, we know there's always going to be opposition. That's just a reality. And now we see Jesus here about to do a wonderful thing, and we see his critics in the story present among the same congregation. Imagine that. And there are his critics perhaps seeing this wounded man, potentially we might say almost as bait, And so this wounded man becomes bait for their thing to try and trap the Lord in some way in this situation. Notice with me, look at our text in verse 2. It says, so they watched Jesus closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. So take notice, even the Lord's enemies who opposed him they reveal to us right here that they understood themselves certain things about the heart of the Lord. We know from verse 6, as well as from Matthew 12 and Luke 6, the other accounts, that that reference there in verse 2 to they, the pronoun they, is a direct reference to the Pharisees, the Pharisees wanting to find accusation that they might accuse Jesus. Now, we mentioned briefly last time in our study in Mark that the Pharisees are one of the predominant religious sex of that day. Started out really well with a heart during the captivity to preserve the Mosaic law and the ways of Judaism and began with good intention, but yet in in the midst of all that, in their zeal, they lost their bearing and they became extreme. And, And over a period of time, they began living with all sorts of extreme religious codes and rituals and establishing rules that weren't biblical, but were just their own traditions and the Mishnah and the Talmud and all these interpretations of how do you actually live out what the word of God says. And so they created all these standards of conduct and these codes and rituals and things that had to be done, which were man-made religious laws. They were just religious traditions that they established, and they became a sect of self-righteous rule keepers 
who became very critical of anyone who did not live according to their standards. And they believe living according to their codes and standards made them more righteous, made them more holy. Because we do these things, we're more righteous than those who don't do these things. And they became very critical in the midst of this. They became extreme legalists who thought that they were more spiritual than others. And because of that, we see them, as we'll continue to see in the Gospels, they always end up having struggles with Jesus. Because Jesus sought to do the will of God and to honor the Father in heaven, not keep religious traditions. And his highest ideal was always what honors the Father, what lines up and adheres to the word of God, what is in conjunction with what the Spirit of God is doing, and they were primarily concerned about their ideals and their ideas of what was right and wrong. And so because of that, there was always kind of this rub we see going on. And here we see it again in verse 2. That's why it says the Pharisees there were watching Jesus closely because they wanted to see, look what it says, whether he would heal that man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day so that they might accuse him. Now, remember, we talked about just in our last study in Mark's gospel the Sabbath day was intended by God, remember, to be a blessing for mankind. It was a day to cease from their labors, to rest, to be refreshed, to focus on God, and to be able to enjoy that there was not the burden of labor upon them. It's a very beautiful picture, of course, ultimately, of what Christ would do for us. He would become our Sabbath. In him, we cease from all of our labors, and we can rest in the finished work of Jesus and experience that. But in Exodus, or excuse me, yeah, Exodus 31, God had established that for the nation of Israel, and it was something God gave to mankind to bless them and, and to make them be able to be relieved from burden. But the Pharisees, as we discussed in our study at the end of chapter 2, remember, they had created all types of laws and ideas and rituals of what it meant to not do work on the Sabbath day. They weren't content with just take a break from work. They created 39 different categories with all types of sub-ideas under that of what it meant to not work. So we got to really work to try not to work. And remember, it became this burdensome thing to try and remember all the ideas and the rules and the rituals of what it meant to not break Sabbath by not doing any work. And one of those laws that they had created to not work and not break the Sabbath was in relation to what they deemed as a work of healing. And this is why they're watching Jesus now. We know that part of their conduct was that you were only allowed, according to the Pharisees and the mission on the Talmud, you were only allowed to save a life, that was it, on the Sabbath day. You could do nothing to promote healing. So if somebody was bleeding to death, you could apply a tourniquet to stop the bleeding, well, you could not wash the wound, disinfect the wound. You could not administer any healing relief of pain because that would be deemed the work of healing. And so because of this, the scripture tells us, again, not that God forbids healing on the Sabbath, but that that was what the Pharisees' tradition was. And so because of that, we have this man in the worship meeting. He's got a wounded hand. He's in a paralyzed condition. He's a wounded man, and he now becomes, of course, what? He is the prime candidate for Jesus to administer some healing to in compassion. They've seen the Lord heal people before, and they're thinking, man, this guy's the perfect bait. Some people wonder, maybe did the Pharisees invite him to synagogue that day just to put him there as bait? We don't know that. 
But they're thinking, oh, we're going to watch him closely because he's probably going to heal this man. And it tells us here they're fixated, watching Jesus closely, ready to accuse him of being guilty if he should perhaps heal this man. Now, to me, this is a sad, sad picture because think about it. Here are these so-called religious leaders, these religious people, and they're at a worship gathering, but they're really not even there for God. They're not even at the worship gathering per se for God himself. Rather, they're there because they want to make sure their little system of belief gets upheld. And if anybody violates their system of belief or their ideas of what they deem right or wrong, boy, they can't wait to accuse a guilty person. They, they just can't wait to sniff out someone not doing what they think is right or they think is wrong so that they can snoop right in and start accusing them and, and begin to attack them. And how sad and unhealthy to think that here they perceive themselves as holy and spiritual in their cause, if you would, and they are so extremely self-righteous and critical in spirit that they care more about, listen, they care more about their own idea of what they deem right they care more about their own idea rather than things like honoring God, submitting to what the Word of God says, being open to what the Spirit of the Lord might do and seeing ministry happen. And they're in God's house just scrutinizing people, waiting for an occasion to accuse people of doing something guilty. Now, can I just say very honestly, truthfully to me, that sounds much more like the heart of Satan than the heart of God, doesn't it? To be gathered among the people of God and your primary goal is just looking for people doing wrong things to accuse them. And, and, and look, how blind and hard-hearted is the condition of these Pharisees in this particular record? Think about it. They are literally looking for error where? In Jesus. That's pretty bad. You've crossed an extreme at that point. They're literally looking to try and find fault in the Lord himself. Now, what's interesting, as I said, is though these are people opposing Jesus and they're his enemies, they also reveal to us that they understood, even as Jesus' enemies, they understood certain things about the heart of the Lord. They believed certain things about the heart and nature of Jesus. For example, they believed in that worship gathering that Jesus would be inclined to want to minister to those who have the greatest needs. That's why they're watching for him to do this, because they believe Jesus isn't just going to show up at the synagogue and speak and teach the word of God, though that was often Jesus' custom. We see that in the Gospels. But they understand, we know the heart of Jesus. He's going to be looking for someone who's broken. His heart's going to be inclined to find somebody who needs to be ministered to. And they knew of Jesus, not that Jesus was bothered by people's messy lives or burdened and irritated, oh, dealing with broken people. Can I just teach a Bible study? They knew that Jesus didn't care about just giving nice biblical presentations and being the greatest showman, but that Jesus wanted to minister to people and to shepherd people. Yes, he taught the word of God, but that was just one aspect of his ministry, that he wanted to minister to people and love people. And, and, and in his own enemies, they said, he's probably, watch it, he, you know he's going to do it. He always is so compassionate for people. 
just guy just loves people. I don't know what's the matter with him. Can't he just preach a good sermon and dance off the stage? And they just, they knew that this was true of the heart of the Lord. And I find this very beautiful because, look, we should believe to this day, because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that's still the heart of the Lord at a worship gathering. We should come to a worship gathering anticipating our Lord, his presence in our midst, desiring to help people with their needs. If you come in and think on a Sunday morning, man, I am probably the neediest, most broken, messed up person in this room, you're probably the one the Lord's most interested in helping because he cares about that and he wants to minister to people. They also, his own enemies, believed as well, we can tell that Jesus had the power to heal people's lives because they were looking, waiting for Jesus to heal them. So they believed that Jesus, as they had seen him before with his power, might heal him. In other words, they anticipated he's probably going to do it again. And again, I look at this and I think to myself, when we come into the house of the Lord, knowing that this is the heart of the Lord and that he has the power to work, we should come into God's house in a spirit of faith and expectancy that Jesus has power to help people, that Jesus has power to heal lives and to bring restoration and do wonderful things. And, and would we not agree? There are so many ways that people are in need of healing in their lives physically, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, relationally. I mean, there are so many ways that people need the Lord's healing and help in their lives, and these Pharisees knew he's got power to heal. We know he has power to heal, and, he, and he's probably going to use his power, and he's probably going to heal somebody today. He's probably going to minister to someone and help someone. Look, whether it's physical, psychological, emotional, spiritual, or relational, why would we not as the Lord's people come to the house of the Lord anticipating, believing you're in our midst and your power's among us, Lord? Minister among us. Heal lives. Help people, Lord. Let people leave the meeting different than they came in. Let wounded people go out healed and helped and lives restored. And they sense Jesus would be prompted with compassion to help this man. And what a great testament, even in their, in a sense, anger towards the Lord. We see a beautiful image of the heart of the Lord in the midst of that. Well, you know, Jesus never lets down. He, he always performs. So look at verse 3. It says, so Jesus said to the man, he's aware they're watching him, staring him down. He said to the man with a withered hand, step forward. Now, perhaps again, the man maybe was just trying to blend in. I have to imagine that he probably is not wanting to draw attention. He's probably just attending the meeting, looking for some spiritual encouragement, trying to keep his condition to himself, having accepted perhaps that this was just now his lot in life. And like we probably would have, this man who's now a wounded individual, a part of his life has become damaged. It's withered. It no longer functions the way that it once did. And perhaps this man had just assumed, as we probably would as well, this is just going to be my lot in life. This part of my life, it's just going to be damaged. It's, it's perpetually wounded. It's, this part of me has just, in a sense, become paralyzed, and this is just going to be my lot in life. I'm going to have to live with this part of my life withered and damaged with having lost its capacity. And little did he know unexpectedly on that day that he was going to hear the voice of the Lord in that meeting speak directly to him with authority and with love. Jesus says to that man, 
stepped forward and he probably looked him right in the eye. You, I want you to step forward. And I look at this passage and I think, here's Jesus, think about it, very compassionately. He probably knows this man's insecure. He knows he has apprehensions. He knows he's fearful, but yet he still tells him, despite the past, despite what's happened to you, I'm asking you, I want you to take a step. I want you to take a step. I I know what's happened to you. I know you're hurting. I know you've been wounded. I know that part of your life feels like it is damaged and destroyed forever. But despite your situation, despite the circumstances, despite how long it's been like that, Jesus says, all I'm asking, would you just take a step? Just a step. Would you just take one step? Step out if you would. And can I say that is... That's a rather simple ask if you think about it from the Lord. I love that Jesus is so patient and compassionate. I mean, he doesn't overload this man in the midst of what he's going through and make his misery worse. He doesn't lay on him a heavy thing. At this moment, again, keep in mind, this guy hasn't read the entire story. He doesn't know his hand's going to get restored. Nobody's told him that. He has no idea what's going to happen. All he knows is he just heard Jesus say to him, would you take a step forward? And how compassionate that Jesus says, all I'm asking is just take a first step. That's all. Would you just, a step? Just one step, one small step, and perhaps, I don't know, maybe that is what the Lord, who's in our midst this morning, is conveying to your heart today. Maybe in faith, despite you can fill in the details for your life, maybe in faith the Lord is saying for you, would you just take a step? That's all. I just want you to take one step in this direction, just a small step. And think about it. Jesus is just asking this man, as he asks him to step forward, not just to step out randomly, but as he steps forward, what is he also doing? He's stepping toward the Lord. And so many times, the first step towards receiving help from the Lord is the willingness that despite what has transpired, despite our tendency to pull away or to put up walls or just assume that it will always be in this damaged way that it was, sometimes the very first step is to exercise the courage to step toward the Lord and give him a chance to see what he might do by his power and through his wisdom and his love and to draw near to him in openness and say, you know what, Lord? You're not asking me just to take a random step. You're asking me to take a step toward you in this and to trust you, whatever else that means. And think about this, folks. This man's one step, it became the best step he ever took, was it not? I think the first step I took towards pursuing my wife. Awesome step. Great step. Changed my whole life in a wonderful way. And think about it. In this room, how many wonderful testimonies of the Lord's work started with just the willingness for someone in faith to take a step? Just a step. And it's a very minimal thing if you think about it. And how many wonderful times has the Lord done incredible things because somebody was willing to start with just taking a step? 
to take a step in the right direction, to take a step towards what the Lord is directing someone to take a step towards. Well, as this man steps forward, now the focus of him is on everyone, is, of everyone is on him. And Jesus, in light of that, it seems now kind of, again, he knows what's going on in the heart of the Pharisees in the midst of this whole thing. So he turns his attention to start kind of addressing them now, verse 4. It says, Jesus then said to them, notice, not to the man now, to those who he knows are very hard-hearted looking to accuse him. He says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill but they remained silent. So Jesus confronts what he knows is going on anyway in the heart of his silent critics at this moment. And he just brings it right out into the open. Now, since God from a heart of love and compassion originally created the Sabbath for mankind, in fact, if you glance up in chapter 2, verse 27, remember, Jesus said right there as the Son of God, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So again, Jesus understood the Sabbath was made for mankind in love and in compassion, not to be a burden for them, but to be a blessing for them. And Jesus, as the Son of Man, knew the Sabbath was intended to alleviate burdens and to help people and to minister to mankind in God's love. Jesus asked, tell me then, is it really lawful on the Sabbath to do things that are good to help and save lives, or should we on the Sabbath be doing things that are evil trying to kill and ruin and destroy lives. Interesting that Jesus says, is it lawful? What is a law? A law is something that governs something. So Jesus, in essence, is conveying this concept, kind of challenging them. He's saying, look, what really should govern the heart behind the Sabbath day? He's asking them because he sees what's going on in their hearts. And he says, what should govern what's going on on the Sabbath day when people are assembling together? He says, what do you think should happen on this day? Should this be a day where we come together and people behave in evil ways and they're cruel and mean to one another and they try and kill and ruin and destroy each other's lives? Or do you think maybe the heart of God on the Sabbath day when we come together and rest and gather for worship and focus on God, that maybe God's heart is to act like God and that he wants the heart of his people to do good and to be trying to help each other and save lives and minister one to another and Jesus asked them this question, no doubt, don't miss it. He's intending, I think, to convict their conscience of their own error in that moment. And to me, this shows the love of Jesus, really, because what's Jesus doing asking this searching question? He's giving them a chance to admit that their own hearts are wrong, and here's why, because he probably also wants to heal their withered hearts. See, the man's got a withered hand, but Jesus is also looking at their heart in this condition and he's saying, man, your hearts have really withered. And he wants to, in a sense, expose their guilt to them that he might help them as well. But sadly, in stubborn pride, what does the end of verse 4 say? It says, but they kept silent. In other words, they knew they were wrong, but they refused to humbly admit it. They took a stance in pride, and their silence and their inaction was basically their refusal to surrender to needed change that they were aware that they needed for their heart attitude to be changed, but instead they opted to put their stake down in pride. And they kept silent and refused to acknowledge their own error before the Lord in their withered heart. Now, look, let me just say, when at times Jesus asks you and me a searching question, as he does sometimes, right? When he asks us one of those searching questions on occasion, 
to challenge our heart at times, let's beware of dismissing that searching question from the Lord in our heart at times, of dismissing it in pride and refusing to respond. And choosing, like these Pharisees, to silently ignore facing the hard answer that we know the Lord is revealing to us. Because he's questioning something in our heart and he's saying, are you going to face this reality or are you going to make excuses for it in your own pride? And sometimes like these Pharisees, the Lord dealing with our hearts, he'll ask us a searching question, but he's just trying to bring to the surface our willingness to say, you know what, Lord, I'm wrong. My attitude's wrong. My perspective has been wrong. And before you, I, I need to admit that and to let you work in my life. But sadly here, they hardened their hearts and refused to respond to Jesus. Verse 5 goes on to tell us, and when Jesus looked around at them, look what the Holy Spirit says, I didn't write this, he did, with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their heart. So take note, Scripture reveals that the heart of the Lord, in response towards seeing the people harden their hearts, was that he was two things, both angered by this and grieved by this. So here's Jesus, the great physician, and he diagnoses the unhealthy heart condition within these religious leaders at this time, observing by their actions the hardness of their hearts. And Jesus is grieved and angered, it says, by the hardness of their hearts. That term hardness there in verse 5 could also be translated petrified, where something becomes like rock hard. And it's also a term that was used to refer to a thick callus that would develop over the skin, where a person no longer has sensitivity in that area anymore. They're no longer tender. They don't feel anything anymore. And that's what he's using to describe the hardness of their heart. Their heart had become hardened like a stone, like a calloused hand. If you, There's no sensitivity anymore. There's just a thick callousing because of what's going on. And Jesus was, it says, both angered by that hardened heart condition and grieved by them hardening their hearts in the way that they were. Now, I don't think we should ever miss an occasion in the word of God if it tells me Jesus hates something, right? We see that in the book of Revelation. Might want to pay attention to that one. If it says Jesus is angered by something, might want to pay attention to that one. Because I don't want Jesus hating something I'm doing. I don't want Jesus being angered with something I'm doing. And so here, Jesus was angered by their hardened hearts because he sees in their hearts this, if you would, cruelty that they're exercising, not only toward him, but toward this man being so proud in this moment. And I can't help but to wonder if Jesus, as he's righteously angered, is thinking in this moment as he's looking at them, wait a minute, what right do you have to behave like that? I mean, think of the... The, 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 the patience and kindness and grace that's been shown to you, and you're now going to play stubborn? You're now going to be cruel? You're going to be hard-hearted and have no sensitivity? And, 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 and Jesus was actually angered by that. I can't believe that you would be that stubborn. I can't believe that you would be that cruel. And it says he's also grieved, which is a term that speaks of sorrowing, like in the death of a loved one that he looks at them and he's grieved because he's thinking after all the kindness and mercy and patience of God shown to you, now you are going to be that harsh? How sad. And, and his heart's broken. And it grieves his heart to see them being so unkind and so 
proud and putting their flag in the stand. And think particularly of what symptoms are characterizing the hardness of their hearts. Well, a few things I jotted down here. They cared more about being right and upholding their own view than doing what's right. They were extremely critical, if you would. They had a superiority complex. They thought that they were more special because of what they did in comparison to what other people did. And perhaps, if you would, worst of all, not only refusing to admit their own error when it was exposed to them and stubbornly resisting correction, but perhaps the, the, the highest of all that maybe generated the anger of the Lord as he looked upon them in that condition and his grief in his spirit towards the hardness of their hearts is worst of all, they were denying the voice of the Lord himself who is testifying very powerfully to their heart in that moment. And they were hardening their heart and resisting what the Lord was clearly saying to them in their hearts. You know, it is very interesting that Hebrews chapter three warns us, even as Christians, saying today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Psalm 95, which that's quoted from, as well as Hebrew three, also equates the hardening of our hearts to an act of rebellion. It says, don't harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. So the Bible says, look, not only don't harden your heart, but the Bible says that when we harden our heart, it's equated to, from God's perspective, as an act of rebellion when we harden our heart towards the Lord. To me, that's a great reminder. No wonder this perhaps angered the Lord in disrespect and grieved him it brought such sadness to him as he saw. We need to be careful that we don't allow the hardening of our hearts and the symptoms that it brings about because when we harden our heart, we in a sense could be, in a sense, arousing within the Lord the same response towards us. Now look what verse five goes on to say that Jesus next said to the man. He said to the man, stretch out your hand and he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. So having dealt with the Pharisees, he now turns, having already encouraged the man, remember what? One step, step forward. Having already encouraged him to take a first step, Jesus, you could say, now takes his faith to the next level because he now directly addresses the specific personal issue that had caused him to be wounded, and that was the withered hand. And so here we tell, see Jesus saying to this man, stretch out your hand. In essence, he's directly zeroing right in on the, on the condition now, He's not kind of keeping it generalized. He specifically says regarding his personal withered condition, I'm aware what's happened to you. I know what's happened to you. I know how that happened. And I know how you got into that condition. And I know that part of your life. I know it's damaged now. I know it's been wounded. But I need you to trust me. I need you to let me work. I need you to allow me the opportunity because I want to help you. And so Jesus, speaking to this man, gives him an instruction. And think about the instruction. He tells him, stretch out your hand. Now, his hand's paralyzed. He can't stretch out his hand. That's an impossible command, right? He could have started giving to Jesus every possible excuse. Lord, I can't. I don't have the power to do that. I, there, I, I, it's not within me to do that. Lord, what you've asked, it's, it's not only humbling, it's It's impossible. But sometimes the Lord may do the same in our lives in an area maybe that's wounded or damaged, and he may give to us an impossible command. Stirring our faith and asking us to trust his power, he may say to us at times, look, I'm aware what happened to you, and I know. 
I know you've been wounded, and I know that area's damaged, and I know you're thinking that it would always be that way, but I'm asking you as the Son of God, trust me with this. I'm asking you if you would just let me work and respond to me. And look what it says. Jesus gives him this command, and he doesn't give all the excuses. It says he stretched out his hand, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. The man obeys in faith what the voice of the Lord was to him. And he reaches forth his hand. Again, just simply maybe sent the signal from his brain because it wasn't working. But he sent this, and he somehow responded to the Lord who was giving him an opportunity to respond in faith and to see what the power of the Lord might do when he simply responded in faith by taking the willing heart attitude of saying, you know what, I'll at least respond. I'm just going to respond to you, Lord. And I think this is a wonderful reminder to all of us because sometimes the Lord will give us opportunities to respond in faith to see what would happen But guess what part he leaves in our court? The response. He says, I know this, no pun intended, I know this may be a stretch. I'm asking you to do this. You've already taken a step. You took a step. See that? You took a step. You were able to take a step. Now I'm asking you to stretch a little further and to see what I might do by my power if you're willing to extend towards me and give me a chance to work and respond and look at the result of his faith and obedience, his hand was restored as whole as the other. Not only was his hand healed, it says it was restored as whole as the other. In other words, Jesus miraculously healed this man with the power of restoration and brought his hand back to its original normal condition. He brought it all back to how it once was. That part of his life that did not work any longer, the power of Jesus not only healed, but brought restoration whereby that part of his life was restored back to how it once was in his life before. Man, what a wonderful thing to know that our Lord not only has the power to heal and to help people, but that Jesus has the power to bring about restoration. That's a wonderful term, restoration. And can I say in connection to that, this also shows us of the heart of the Lord that Jesus delights to see ruined, damaged, completely destroyed things be restored. That's his heart. That his heart, the heart of the Lord, is not restoration only by his power, but it's actually his preference. He loves to see powerful restoration happen. And we as broken people would take the step towards the Lord on occasion in faith and obedience. I think we would see the Lord bring wonderful works of restoration. I've seen it before. I've witnessed it. You have as well. We know it's the heart of the Lord. Now look how our text concludes. Sadly, verse 6 tells us the Pharisees went out after seeing this. Imagine And they immediately plot with the Herodians how they, against him, might destroy him. So sadly, instead of rejoicing that Jesus just helped somebody or miraculously changed someone's life, they become angry and they go out and they recruit another group, the Herodians, to be angry together with them. Now, the Herodians, we know, were a political sect that showed allegiance to Herod and all of his ideologies, so their main calls, if you would. The Herodians had their calls. 
The Herodians' cause was they wanted to advance the ideas of Roman government in the relevant Roman Empire. And so the Pharisees go out, they join together with them, and their goal, look at it, it says right there, their goal is to plot to work against Jesus and how they might destroy Jesus. Can I just say how utterly sad to see what happens to people when they don't have a right heart? Let me look where they go to. When they don't deal with their wrong heart and they don't have the heart of the Lord, they literally are to the place where they're willing to do something that works against Jesus's ministry and they're actually trying to destroy Jesus's ministry. Now that's pretty radical. I look at this and what a fitting picture and a contrast you see there within this record of, if you would, the heart of the enemy and the heart of worldly forces. What's the heart of the enemy and the heart of worldly forces? To destroy lives and to work against everything that is right and good. That's the heart of the enemy and the heart of the world. Jesus said of the devil that he's a thief and all he wants to do is not only lie to people, but to rob, kill, and destroy. That's the heart of the enemy in the world. But what is the heart of the Lord? Compassion, helping people's lives, ministering to people in love and in the power of the Lord to see people healed and restored. And can I just say for us this morning, may we not only want to know the heart of the Lord, but may we, by the grace of God, want to have the heart of the Lord. Now, 1 Samuel 16 tells us that the Lord seeks people after his own heart. May he be able to find such in us.